guide rope, his keys, and they were much too long for me. And I had 20 Australian shillings, which was about 50 cents in in Australian money. And then I went to the coach maker, and he put a tip on that broken ski. And then I had a pair of skis, a first pair of skis. And I went to a kids race, and I had very little time to, to go and practice before. They were too long, and I could hardly turn them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Edge podcast. This podcast is designed to give the team of the members and our greater snow sports community an insight into the world, which is competitive skiing, from the club level right through to the elite level. My name is Rochelle Gilmore, and I am hosting this series. I am a coach at Team Hotham and former athlete with the club. This podcast is a great way for us to share a behind-the-scenes look into the world of competitive skiing, coming from the Australian perspective. In this episode, I have a chat with Peter Zerknitzer, who is as big of a Hotham legend as you can get. We talk about a lot of things. How he ended up in Australia as a ski instructor in the 60s. How Zerky started, which is the place many of us Hotham skiers and snowboarders love to go. If you're listening from somewhere else, Zerky's is kind of one of the main bars and hotels and restaurants that we go to here at Mount Hotham. We talk about stories of his travels and ski racing. Also, what it was like skiing and growing up in Austria. It is a really insightful chat and we, I guess, look at some of the ways that skiing has changed and overall Peter shares some pretty awesome stories. And before we get into this chat, Team Hotham would like to thank Sherbrooke Design and Construction. Sherbrooke Design and Construction offer a full package of services to accommodate all your custom building requirements under one roof. Why subject yourself to the hassle of running all over town when you can come into Sherbrooke and have every aspect of your project arranged without having to leave the building. Since 1999, the team has designed and constructed renovations, extensions and new home projects across Melbourne. Let's get into the chat. Hello everyone. Today we've got another episode of The Edge and we've got Peter Zerknitzer here. How are you going today, Peter? I'm going very well. The winter could have been a bit more user-friendly, but otherwise everything is fine. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely been a strange one up yeah. here, that's for sure. Yeah. It's good that we could open up for the last little bit of the season. Yes, that's right. It is sort of very, very quiet and quite difficult to really function properly and so few people, but that's the way it is. There's not much we can do. And hopefully it's soon over and then operate normally again. So what I'm going to get you to do now, Peter, is I would love you to kind of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how long you've been here at Hotham for. Yeah, I've been actually a long time. In 63, I came the first time. And how it happened was a guy from over from Europe, from Zeus, he was here before the war as a ski instructor just one one winter. And then Lindsay Salmon built a drift chalet and he wrote to him, could you find a ski instructor for us? We, we need one. I just built a chalet and so on. And he said, look, it's so wonderful. I enjoyed it very much. And he was in 1938 here. 
and the people were delightful and I had the most wonderful time. And he more or less said afterwards when we went to Melbourne, they took me around like this skiing Dalai Lama, you know, it was all just wonderful. And they gave him a, a great time. So he said to me, and he has got a beautiful five-star hotel in Suez, and the Shah of Persia and the royal family stayed there, and all. he has got the most wonderful business. And he said, if I'd be you, I would go. And then eventually, you know, so I came over and it was all nice. I lived up in the old pub and a wonderful winter here. And then I came back again and again, and then they said, oh, you should build a little thing. You should get something here. And I said, very difficult, you know, the money and so on. <laughs> and they then tried to the Albinis, old Mikhail and McCutcheon and Keogh and all the old boys and from the Alpine Club there, and they were my dear friends, and we had wonderful skiing together. And that was only when I got there, the rope toe going. There was no other lift. So where was that? The rope toe on Blue Ribbon. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Then there was then a little pommer in the basin over there, just going down the village chair to where you turn over then to go to the rotary line. That was a tiny little pommer lift label. And so in 19... 70 then, I tried to, to establish, get a permit to, to build. And that was very difficult in the old days. They didn't want anything. Our circus was supposed to fur further down. You was not supposed to see from the road. How would you have some business if nobody can see you? It's a bit difficult. But that was then quite difficult. And finally, those gentlemen, of course, said to the Minister for Lanes, look, you've got to give Peter a bit of land, you know, you come on. And he, Mikhail flew then up with the Minister for Lanes from Melbourne, and then finally I got a bit of land and started to building, but it was only, it was too late, and I didn't have any money on top of it. And then we sort of toddled along, and... And three years later, sort of, we finished Little Circus. And that was all fine. It was lovely. And then we got a pommel lift built up the summit. And then there was uh, another, and there was the double chair going up, naturally, from the very bottom, the one which is disused now here. Used know. to be a playground. Yeah, the playground. But it went all the way down. It was just Schumann cut it in half eventually. He didn't want that we had any business, more or less, up here. So he built then the village chair and into his building, more or less. <laughs> so, <laughs> but that's the way it went. And then there was a block of lift built and uh, heavenly and so on and we toddled along and had a little business and Heather was very good you know. Heather's your wife? Yeah my wife and she was excellent you know in organizing things and I had to get the people in and she sort of administered the whole thing and she was very good so without her I wouldn't have been going to well probably. <laughs> 
So were you instructing throughout that whole time? Yes, like, yes, Tell me yes. a little bit about yeah, yes, instructing. Instructing, well, what happened was in 69, I think. Yeah, I went because Mr. Sherman came in and he joined the, the hotel lift company and he wasn't terribly keen. They always sent me a ticket to come over and so on. And he said, no, no, I don't want to send a ticket. So I went to Srebro for just one winter. And then afterwards they came to Srebro and said, oh, you better come back. So I came back and, you know, started building and uh, worked in the ski school there, but only for one more year. Then I had to work in here. We had a ski hire and eight rooms over there and a little restaurant and, and so we sort of just paddled along. So the building I guess originally was a lot smaller than what we've got here that we're sitting yes, in? Yes, yes that was much. It had eight bedrooms and sort of a restaurant, campistro bar and yeah it was much smaller. In 2000 we built them with Glenville the apartments, 30 apartments here in the back and that was it's now nearly 20 years you know it's quite amazing how fast time does when what year roughly did Zerkis start well Zerkis started I had actually we got up and just had a concrete floor right over the top and I tried to seal it off and then I had a little ski high in there. Then we had the coffee shop and then built on, you know, up the top floor and that was the eight rooms and a couple of staff rooms downstairs and that's how we sort of went along. And so it was very nice and we had wonderful people and all the there wasn't much accommodation here in those days, and they were all, I mean, the older rooms, they were all, all en suite, each one, you know, so they all had their own bathroom and the rooms. And we had wonderful people, very nice people from Melbourne and, and partly Sydney, and then I got some good chefs sometimes over from Europe in the nice hotel there where I was teaching in the winter, uh, European Northern winter. Hemisphere? Northern Hemisphere, yeah. When I saw a good chef, youngish one, I said, why don't you come to Australia? So came out and they were wonderful. So we had quite, actually, quite a good kitchen. And, and I mean, they, they were real chefs. Yeah. And, and so we took that sort of development is... And we built a bit on more, and, and so we just grew along. And we had then also downstairs where the ski is. We had a sort of a coffee shop come vista down there, and we just always built a bit on. The ski was a bit enlarged, and yeah, everything went quite okay. It was a lot of work, and and uh, we also had for. I don't know, 10 years, a bit of a night spot downstairs, and, and it was quite amazing. So A night spot, like a nightclub? Yeah, we went to bed at about half past one, two o'clock, and, and up again at seven, and you know, after, kept it going. After, after the season. 
I, I was absolutely stuffed you know, when, when you, you just when you haven't got that you can employ any amount of people and you don't have to work so much or whatever. Yeah. You need the money, you yeah. know, it is very little. When I went to the bank, you know, to borrow some money at the beginning of what for? They said, it's tell them up at all. You must be mad. You know, that's how it was. Well, it would have been a pretty crazy time back then. Well, yeah, like, yeah, very crazy time. There. Oh, no. There's oh, nothing yeah. else here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there was here. Yeah, the white crystal was there. They burnt down. Yeah, there wasn't an empty old pub up on the hill. Well, I want to diverge a little bit. I want to know how you started skiing. Like, how old were you? I know you're from Austria. Tell us a little bit about growing up skiing. Well, it was going very, very slowly, really, because after the war, all Austria, Germany and all those countries, they were totally down, so... There was, uh, people don't know in Australia how down the whole thing was, you know. For 10 years they had tickets in the shops, you know, you couldn't go and buy whatever you... There was hardly anything. We luckily had the farm, and so we at last had milk and corn. I mean, we had uh, on the Zirknitz River our beautiful little flour mill there, you know, water-driven, you know, everything. And so we actually only bought sugar and salt. Oh, wow. We lived totally off the house of the farm. Off the grid, as they would say now. Yeah, what, what, yeah what, it's quite amazing. And in those days, people had nothing to eat if you didn't have anything. And a lot of them nearly died because of fun, you know, it was really quite, and you couldn't get any materials. I remember I tore my pants. Mum had to put another patch, patch in, <laughs> totally different colour, didn't look too good. And I got then, when I was 12, from 10 to 12, at the bowling alley, you know, I, I worked there, put the bins up and you know, got them back, those bigger other things, quite dangerous actually. And I got so little money and a guy broke his keys and they were much too long for me. And I had 20 Austrian shillings, which was about 50 cents in in Australian money. And then I went to the coach maker and he put a tip on that broken ski and then I had a pair of skis, a first pair of skis and I went to a kids race and I had very little time to, to go and practice before they were too long and I could hardly turn them and it wasn't there in town terribly advanced and nobody after the war had any, any sort of sports, they all just went along and it's even in Sermat, let's say, the Matterhorn, the locals did winter, you know, the Englishman climbed the Matterhorn in 1800, but the people worked so hard on their tiny little farms or had so little home there, the last thing is they wanted to climb the Matterhorn. So it was only the palms were wealthy with all the colonies, you know, and 
they develop several writs, you know, in Switzerland and all those things, because the people there were not terribly well off, except their aristocracy. They had sort of, but the normal people, it was sort of quite low in in a sense, you know. But I mean, it was all right. I'm not saying it so, was so bad, but I mean, we were fine. And also the clothes we had, the uh, wool from the sheep, we had, had it processed and then with a cloth, you know, and that thick loading thing you get the winter in Austria. We all had a suit made and the tailor came to our house and for about two weeks we were six children and he made us all a suit and the boot maker came and we all got the boot made once a year. You know, that's how simple it was in those days. And with those keys, I hope, and, and there was a kids race and it was quite steep and very fluid and I won it ah. and I drained a bit before but I won it and I just thought I was the best in the world you know I was so so, so surprised and so pleased you know and then I got very keen and wherever I could I went out but then I became a carpenter started the apprenticeship. With 14, I had to leave school and then work in the, in the carpenter shop. And there, we had very little time, you know. I could only practice on Sunday and sort of really go skiing. And then I finished the apprenticeship. And then afterwards, I went, because I was very keen to ski, I went to, to become a ski instructor. I wanted to know how you ended up becoming a ski instructor. Yeah, well, there was a fellow who was a ski instructor for quite a time and also a bit of a coach. And he sort of took me a bit under his arm and he said, oh, look, you cannot practice whenever you've got free time and blah, blah, blah. But if you come with me and I went to St. Christophe where the ski instructor school is, you had to go in November into December for about a month and a half. It was actually quite silly. You talk about a snowplow, you know, for a week and all that. And this. It was a bit overdone, you know, the whole ski school. And next year we were in Innsbruck, you know, the capital of Tyrol, and we were there for a month and a half and just tell you all about ski technique and so but it, they could have shortened it a hell of a lot in my view. And then I, I became full-time instructor in the winter and I, I went to Kitzbühel and that was very nice in Kitzbühel. And afterwards I went out to Zürich because to the artwork that was sort of the Taj Mahal in those days. And we saw that the friend who sent me out to Australia. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> hotel and he was very nice to me. So I got very good clients, sort of wonderful people. And like Robert Montgomery, the movie actor, and, you know, and we flew over to Canada, helicopter skiing, you know, and it's a lot of money around there, it just didn't matter. And it was sort of in those early days quite, quite fantastic with those nice people. It was just 
so pleasant, they were so easy, and also they were very, very generous, you know, directly. I didn't have to touch my salary, which wasn't very high, anyhow, but it was okay, it was quite good. But you would get tipped well with those good people as well, so I never had to. And when I afterwards went over back to, to Europe, you know, and took the children as well, well, I, I had a bit of money there to be able to do all this. So we went over there quite a few times. And Annelies went to, she was in Lebanon the half, first to Canada, you know, for race training and so on. And Annelies later on too, and they went to Europe. But for me, ski teaching then was just wonderful. And we also had the ski instructors race always in surf with about 100, 100 instructors. And once I won it, that was sort of here, like behind you, I think, the photo. Ah, yes. And doesn't look very racy, but that was in the 80s. And it was, there was one guy who was literally unbeatable. And, but he must have made a mistake that day. <laughs> and I, I came in. There was good skiers there. And I skied so well. I was never terribly good, but I was a bit of my favorite. And in 57, in our town, they had the, let's say, like you say, the Victorian or the New South Wales Championships. And it was Carinthia, the county, okay. and, and East Tyrol. You know, it was part of Tyrol, belonged in there. And there were some good ones. And, and I became, that was a, a, also a bit of luck. You know, I won the thing. And the Nogla boys, they were very good. I mean, older brother, he he was, even during the war, he was the German champion, Italian champion, you know, and, and, and all. And his brother was very good in downhill, but he wasn't so good in slalom. So I was fair bit back in downhill, but then I won the slalom fairly far ahead. So I won the combined and I got this huge cup. You know, it was really quite a, a wonderful thing what happened to me. And you wouldn't believe it, next to our farmhouse, there was a monastery and there was about 50 nuns in there. And when I was a little boy, they had also a school for cooking and all this. So young ladies went and learned how to cook and all that. It's this monastery and I was their little boy. And I was more in the monastery, and I got all the wonderful food from them. And, and so when I won this race, there was all the nuns at the finish line time. And when I won, they all came and raised me and kissed me. And 35 years later, an Austrian guy came over with his niece and his son was in the Austrian national team, a very good skier. And I walked into the bar and then as I walked in and they had the Continental Cup here and they get points there for Europe when they normally come to Australia. Oh, one of the yeah, yeah, European the, boys that yeah, came yeah, yeah, down yeah, to here. Yeah. Yeah. And the father came uh, 
along with, with his lace or whatever, I can't quite remember. And he said, yeah, that's him, that's him. I could hear it. And then I went over and said, hello, my name is Peter Czechnitzer. I said, yes, I'm, I, I'm younger than you, but I was at the base, he said. It was unbelievable. He said, I've been to hundreds of ski races, but he said, there was about 15 months and they all embraced and kissed you. I have never seen anything like it. It's quite amazing. And he said, I've never seen anything like it. So that's how, how it went. And then there was another silly thing. There was a Grossglockner race. It's a glacier and you walk up about three and a half, four hours. Yep. And you go down and it's all on the glacier. But And I worked in a hotel at the Emperor Franz Joseph Hotel up near the glacier. And the owner said, I'm the, I'm the, the president of our little ski club and you got a race in it. And I said, I'm not, because it was it was international. It was all, uh, you know, the Swiss and the Italians and the Germans and the Austrians and Tony Seiler the world champions were there. And then I said, I can't go in here. I don't qualify, I haven't got points. Oh, I can't do that. So what happened was, but he got me in finally enough. And I had the last number, 96. And the grooves were about that deep, you know, because when it's not, and it was very far. And you wouldn't believe it, it started to ice up in the grooves because I was so late. And I've never skied so fast in all my life. I flew down and how I stood up, I still don't know. And I beat a lot of those, those much better skiers than me because it just got so bloody fast. And I skied a lot on the glacier and you couldn't, the last stop was so steep and like a potato field, you know, water running down. And, and after the finish line, you had to go around a big rock uh, face sort of round and then you could ski the bottom again. And I I skied over the edge after I finished because I did it a couple of times and you had to jump every turn, you know, I can't get stuck, you know, with the heels or anything. And we always had sort of two fifteen skis, you know. And then from Canton also that's home province, you know, when I made a table for the coffee shop up there, some Carinthian people came and said, ah, what's your name? And I said, Peter, Peter Serknitzer. And he said, you can't be Peter Serknitzer. He's dead. And I said, how come? And he said, well, I was at a close dog now race. He said, in 1957. And he, after he finished, he went over the edge and he said, Tony Sala and all the world's best skiers, nobody skied down, but he skied, went over the edge and disappeared and we've never seen him again. He is dead. You can't be Peter Zirknitzer. Isn't that a stupid thing? <laughs> After about 40 years, you know, I work out there. I said, Peter Zirknitzer, you can't be because I was there and he died after the thing. So silly. <laughs> but that, 
That's hilarious. It's hilarious. Because you did quite a bit of racing. Yeah, I did. You know, it's like, like here that they football where we came and we raced, we went from place to place and ground. Yeah. And I, I sort of, I won quite a few races, but they were not. But I, I just was sort of. And one thing too, because I remember the prices were in Spital was the place for the race and the prices were in a shop window. And there was a pair of Abre boots, and I had no money, you know, I went to carpenter printers to buy some nice Abre boots, and, and it was my size. And I said, oh, and it was third price, I think, the boots. And I thought I'd much rather win those boots if I could, you know. And we were sort of just moving around before, and I called an age before we raced just to keep warm. And I split my pants. And so I raced into the farmhouse next door and got some safety pins. And bloody pins came loose. And especially on the, on the left hand turn, the pins went into my leg. I still remember. And guess what? I came served. <laughs> you got the boots. I got the boots. Oh, it was just <laughs> Oh, that would have made you ski pretty fast with the safety pins. Yes, yes, yes. Obviously, equipment has changed quite a lot. Oh, yes, we have. Yeah, it has changed enormously. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about it, because obviously, like the little younger athletes in the race club, they would have no idea what skis used to be like. Oh, no. Well, in the old days, all the edges were screwed on. You know, there was not covered over edges. Then the first were the Dynamics. They, they had a covered edge and, and they were fairly long too. You know, let's say a little guy like him downhill, I had 222s. How tall are you? Well, about 165 or something. Centimetres. Yes. Yep. And, yeah, but that was... But when you have got speed, it's okay, you know. But they weren't as good and we didn't have also the money to get the good gear and, and all. So we were little. We had sort of fairly ordinary stuff too, but it... it, it Improved enormously. I mean, the equipment now is so totally different. But yeah, it just went on like this. And then Fisher and Josef Fisher, he was a lovely guy. And they had a Porsche race in Sears Balls. And they invited world champions in the Porsche car racer. You know, they, they had a big meeting in Sears. And the Huschke from Einstein was the Porsche chief, he was more important than the Pope, you know, and all the things. And Betty Fisher was there, and Hannes Marker. And Marker developed the first safety binding, Hannes Marker, you know, the topist. And he was wonderful. And I skied with Mrs. Huschke from Hanstein, and so was at all the parties with them, you know, every night we had a party in different hotels and oh it was great fun you know we had a wonderful time uh, there and, and Bebby Fisher also a delightful fellow 
and he said, well, Vita, would you try some skis of ours? I was Kneisel, ski Kneisel. And I said, oh, well, that'd be very nice. A couple of days later, three beautiful pairs of skis arrived, you know, and, and all this and sort of he could, I could forever them, you know, they just sent me some mm. stuff and but it was such nice people everybody had fun yeah you know in the evening you had dinner and afterwards they had always a bit something or another you know it was really tough because after the war everybody wanted to live again and that really come it's quite amazing it was a wonderful time sort of to come up how do you feel about being friends with those people that have had such an impact on the ski industry? Well, it was, you felt quite comfortable, pleased that you were lucky to to know them. And, you know, and then they said, look, if you ever need anything, just order it, not a problem, and so on. And I then had to go to Blizzard when the army, the Australian army, they got skis for racing over in Europe. They had an international army race, and so I organized it. So I knew quite a few. And Mr. Kneisel came with the White Star. He couldn't break the White Star. He said, you can, if you can break it, you, I'll give you a thousand shillings. And we put it in a door, you know, and tried. You couldn't break the ski. Impossible. You meet a lot of people in any sense, you know. Quite fun. And also when you get on with people well, then they say, look, if you ever need anything, just let us know. Not a problem and blah, blah, blah. So you can be luckier than some people. <laughs> so you just get into there, right? <laughs> I want to know, how did you end up in Australia? Like, that would have been such a journey back then. A oh, big yes, risk. it was. I, that was naturally silly. I came out by boat. In the early days, all the instructors came by boat. So and there was a few of you international instructors back then? Yeah, but when I was on the boat, there was only one more. But before the frontiers, there was quite a few went to Australia, to Sleppo, and some Swiss guys went to Mampura. Then they said, oh, you naturally, it takes over a month, you know, on the boat. And bloody terrible. Really, Flotta Lauro, we went up, not the best. And, and what should I say? Oh, could you take a little bit of peace for me because I'm flying, I can't. So I finished up with 17 pieces of luggage. And when I hopped in the train, you know, to go down to Italy, to Genova, the conductor said, now listen, mate, in Innsbruck, you go out. If you want to shift house, get yourself a truck, not a train. And so and in Innsbruck, he disappeared, and so we went across the border. And then the Italian conductor said, oh, drop a volume, drop a volume. What I does said, that mean? Too much volume, drop too much volume. Whole carriage was full, you know, the whole train carriage. With all my luggage, you know, when we got to Genoa, I had to get a little truck to get to the, to the boat. And those bloody instructors, most of them are mean as catch it, you know what I mean? Cost me a lot of money to 
you know, pay for the taxi, pay for this, and, and then in Melbourne I had to get it to the hotel, and they nearly died when I arrived, like I shifted house, you know what I mean? Not one said thank you, really, or said, uh, do I owe you anything? We all had no money, you know what I mean? It was really quite a bad experience, I must, no more, no more. It's hard enough taking all your own gear. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, did you ski at all this season here in Australia? Yeah, I did a bit. I did a bit, but it wasn't. It, the weather was so bad for quite a while. And then I did. I didn't. I love skiing still. I ski when I can, you know. But when the weather gets shitty, when I was instructor, I had to go. Now I don't. Yeah. So you've come all the way across yes, to Australia, and, and then Lindsay Salmon actually picked me up in Melbourne. But then I had a box of three pairs of skis and a suitcase and a a rucksack. And the road was closed. So I had to walk in from Blowhart with all the gear. It was actually quite 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 So you've got here to Australia for the first time. Yeah. What did you think? Oh, I thought it was fine. It was just so big, you know, and when you drive in Austria, I mean, you go in the border, out the other one quite often, you know, it, it's, see, Austria has got 8,000, 86,000 square kilometers. And the biggest farmer here, the biggest landowner in Australia has got 80,000. You know, it's only 4,000 square meters more, square miles more. Down the country. Yeah, it, it is quite amazing. Here's Nick, the farmer's nearly as big as the whole of Austria. And when you travel, I mean, it's you think it's never ending. And normally, so few houses, and you just go along, and it's all, it, it's, it is different. So, what kept you coming back to Australia? Like, what did you love about, I guess, being up here at Hotham and Threadbow? And... Well, what it was is. The people were very nice, especially the old Albinis, Mikhail and all the boys. They were very nice. And after skiing, you know, we went around Melbourne and had some lovely dinners. And and it sort of was quite... The people were very nice. And we, we just had a lot of fun. And then they said, oh, you got to come back again. So they went over to Zurich. And, and where I was teaching in, in Austria and spent about a fortnight there and said, look, we organized the tickets and said, that's all fine, please come. And so and then 72, I got married and then I got double stuck. <laughs> so what's your wife's name? She, yeah. So she's Australian as well. Yes. So that yeah. really got you stuck here. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I said at times I got stuck, you know, when I came teaching here, but then I'm double stuck, was doubly stuck. I mean, I was getting married. Here we go. And then eventually, yeah, she was very good. And so we just built a little thing up. Now, the big question, how old are you now? Well, I am now uh, 88, but I'm getting on the 14th of October, I'm going into 89. So you're nearly 89. Yeah, I'm 89 because I'm only... A few weeks off. 
yeah, a few weeks off when I'm 89 and 90. That's pretty amazing that you're still out there skiing a few times a year. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can still ski, okay? I've yeah. seen you out there over the years quite a bit. I guess, what do you love about skiing? That's all about, really, skiing. I just love it. It's, it's quite often the company you aim as well and you have fun together and then you just go for a coffee or you just enjoy the skiing especially when and when you've got good gear you can carve well and, and sort of come out of the turn faster than you go in it's quite a bit of fun really it's, it's just pleasant sometimes it's hard to put it into words the love for skiing. Yeah. So we were just talking about this before, and I guess the race club here at, at Hotham, you've had quite a bit of history with it because your kids were in the race club and grandkids. And yes. yeah, tell us a little bit about, yeah, I guess your love for Team Hotham. Yes. Well, I'm just pleased that there is a choice, you know, that, that it exists, you see. And I'm sure that if our children wouldn't have been in it, they probably wouldn't enjoy skiing as much as they still do. And it is just the ski so well, so naturally it's very enjoyable to take the raisins out of the cake and, and smile forever. You were talking a little bit about the turn shapes and all of that sort of thing, I guess the style that ski races have. Yes, oh, well, that's right, you you hear a lot about it. All looks, they're all a bit different, but to somebody who is not really watching it terribly carefully, so it's all the same. They're all ski so fantastic. And it is just unbelievable. And the speeds they have now, you know, like the Han and Kam got when you're 130, 140 case and over the edge and just woof down and it's unbelievable you know it really is quite amazing but changed a lot when i saw in 51 before the world championships i saw Cenucolo, the italian downhiller he won quite a few races he came from Avedoni, you know more middle uh, italy and he would have had in slalom do 10 skis and he skied badly in slap, but downhill, he was the first ones who kept to the ground. You know, a lot of other ones, if they did, took big jumps, they thought, well, they had a lot of speed. I jumped 60 meters because so far that Zeno stayed to the ground and beat them. That was in, in the 50s, 51. And I was in Badgerstein and I saw them. And the difference... The downhill up top was quite good, and then I had quite some motors from memory. That was the, the first, when the first 30 came down, the first 15 at the top, then the other was 15 to the next one, and then came sort of the, the class B, you know, just they had a race as well. Then it was the good ones, they went over those bumps like they didn't exist and did those other ones go for spins. Just unbelievable. There is a, a, a difference, you know, it really. But in the old days, it was quite simple mm. in, in that sense. But, and there was Stein Eriksson was then the big boy and 
he won Fik the slalom in there. And a friend of mine, he took the gate the long way and lost against Stein Eriksen, otherwise he won. And I, I was so wishing that he would win, but he, he didn't. So I guess the contentious question at the moment is the family has decided to sell, you guys have decided to sell Zerkis. And how are you feeling about it all? I mean, I'm close to 90, so I never thought that we would sell it. It's normally like, but in an Austrian sense, you know, we we, we sort of different because over there, if you have a pub, some have it for, for 200 years or 300 years, you know, it's all their kids and, and to pass it on and on, you know, it's a lot. Then it sort of, it just came about and we had to talk and Heather sort of wouldn't want to be here for the winter, but Annelies, you know, she can run it all right. And I mean, Annelies is quite good outdoor driving. You know, she is more or less deciding that she would also be willing to sell. So here we are. It's quite a lot to manage, I imagine. Yeah, it is. Look, it is actually quite, it is just staff generally, but we were actually reasonably lucky with the staff. But it can be, you know, it can be at times. But then again, we did reasonably well out of it. You know what I mean? But naturally, now, like last year, you know, we, we had only three days and then you pay $100,000, you know, to the R&B. You know what I mean? When so It's challenging, the yeah, COVID and everything. Well, yeah, no, but that will uh, go. And it, it is actually quite a reasonable business. If somebody is switched on and it really and hops into it and does it properly. You can't leave okay. It, it's not that bad. But naturally, if you had too many years, you know, like the, those two now, you know, like last year, I think, you know, for the three days, we probably took $10,000 or what the beginning. And so it's, it's just not very good. You can't have too many of them. But it, it, it's all right. It, it will go. The shop is quite good, and the bar over there, and the accommodation, the booking, and the whole lot. It is not bad. Yeah. It's all right. If you're organized. It's a great business. Yeah, it can be. We've talked about a lot of different things your history of skiing and creating Zerkis. What is one piece of advice? that you would give the parents of the race club? My advice would be if they can afford it, and most of them are, obviously otherwise they wouldn't do it. I think it's a great gift to the children and great satisfaction to themselves. If they are happy, then they have got nice friends and they ski together. And it sort of makes a quite a pleasant situation out of it. A, they become good skiers, B, they love it and have got friends and later on, you know, when they, when school finish or whatever, or whatever they do afterwards, go to university, then they race in university. See, all our kids did. Not, An- uh, not Christa, but Annelies went all over the world, you know, raced in university races. Hannes was 
did the same. And they meet the Russians, the Norwegians, and the Chinese. And, and it is sort of quite a world in itself. Sort of quite fun. Yeah, like it's a great community. And all the kids are nice. I remember I went to, to Italy, you know, when Hannes flew over from Whitman College, you know, with the American team. And then they exchange uniforms, you know, and do all the things. It's actually quite nice. It's, well, the world isn't such a nice place, but those young people have a wonderful time, mm. you know, and they, they don't mean anything bad. All they want to do is win, if they could, you know what I mean? So it, it's a nice venue, actually, and it's, it's quite uh, pleasing, in a sense, because it's, well, at times the world is not such a wonderful place in various parts. And when you see this, all those young people having a wonderful time in the super ski, and uh, well, they're all happy and meet again, and yeah. so no, it's I think it's a good thing. Mm, it doesn't really get much better. What about the athletes? Do you have a message for them or some advice? The athletes? Yeah, in the race club. I think the advice is they will ski well all the life will have a lot of fun and it is just nice you know when you for example you go to aspen or vale or whatever and you're up on top of the mountain and you go off the edge and fly down and off you go and you do it better than 90 percent at least of other people so you just Pick the raisins out of the cake a bit and enjoy it, I think. Yeah, for sure. Well, we've talked about a lot of different things. It's been great to be able to sit down and have this chat with you. Thank you so much, Peter. Pleasure. And that is a wrap on our episode with Peter Zerknitzer. What a chat. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone who you think might like a little listen. If you haven't already, please subscribe on wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. And if you're on Apple Podcasts and if you have time, please leave a rating and review. It'll help people find the Edge podcast. See you later.